Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to talk about Michel Foucault's My Body, This Paper, This Fire, which is a response to Jacques Derrida's Cogito and the History of Madness, which was in itself a response or a critique of Foucault's treatment of René Descartes in The History of Madness. So this is Foucault's critique of Derrida's critique. Uh, now before jumping into that, if you're new here, welcome. Uh, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts in a somewhat, or as best I can, accessible way. If you want to follow me anywhere other than on YouTube or wherever, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy. If you want to help me out and you want to see more of this stuff, you can subscribe uh, where I release videos every week, sometimes even more than one. You can like, share, tell your friends. Who knows? They might get a kick out of this or maybe they won't. Um, if you want to help me out monetarily, you can do that via Patreon or PayPal. If you're listening to this on YouTube, you can find it in podcast form pretty much anywhere where you get podcasts where there won't be any ads and vice versa. You can find me on YouTube where I sometimes put up videos if you're interested in that at all. And if you are listening to this on a podcast platform, leave a review. Five stars would be great. Or if you don't think I deserve it, then leave however many stars you think I deserve. And uh, yeah, I don't want to waste any more of your time rambling about me. Let's jump into Michel Foucault's My Body, This Paper, This Fire. Now, I don't want to go and, and give like a whole uh, summary of what Derrida said about Foucault. So this might be confusing unless you listen to last week's episode, which was Derrida's Cogito uh, and the History of Madness. So I'm going to be just jumping into this as though you already know what Derrida said in his critique. So this text starts out with Foucault reiterating that within the work of René Descartes, madness, unlike dreams, are excluded uh, as a kind of from doubtful consideration because one cannot be mad so long as one thinks. So Foucault, just setting the stage here, wants to make it clear that despite what Derrida said in his text, which was, it was actually a lecture, but in any case, Foucault is making clear that he still thinks that within Descartes is an exclusion of madness. Now, against Derrida's reading of Descartes, Foucault says that, um, that Der or Descartes does not say that dreaming is more common and more universal than madness. And he does not say that madness is less common than dreams. That would be a, a misinterpretation. What we do know is that Descartes privileges dreams to madness. And this is before we even consider if madness is an excluded or neglected category within Descartes' work and within the broader project of classical reason in which uh, Descartes is situated. So in Descartes' text, there is an appreciation of the analogy of madness, or sorry, of dreaming as opposed to madness because of its supposedly universal quality and because it is habitual. So it's something that happens all the time or, or can happen to us at any time and it is not at all uncommon. Additionally, within Descartes, he attributes a certain meaning or a certain potential to dreams to rest us, to take us away from the illusion of reality in the fact that what we can experience in dreaming can be so intense and fantastical. That is, you know, we can dream of like, uh, you know, pink horses with like uh, squid's tentacle legs flying across 
um, mountains of, of candy corn or something, you know, very, I don't know what, you know, free association, read into that as much as you'd like, but that's what I came up with on the spot there. We can have pretty fantastical things happen in our dreams. So Foucault reads in Descartes an appreciation of dreams, both in their intensity, in how fantastical they are, and in how common they are, how habitual they are. Now Foucault, reckon, or Foucault suggests that Derrida ignores this, and instead Derrida just kind of levels the playing field of dreaming as though Descartes just treats dreaming as a kind of one type of thing, as though it's not appreciated in Descartes because of these two reasons. That is, it's the dream's intensity and its consistency, how, how habituated we are to it, or how habitual it is. And so what, how Derrida interprets it is he sees dreaming as like a departure from the world, a departure from sensory experience, and that's how he reads it happening in Descartes. But Foucault is a little bit more skeptical in that even in that kind of wacky uh, illustration I drew with the horse with squid's legs flying over a mountain of candy corn, what, <laughs> what, we, what we are given is something that is still bound by stuff I know in real life. That is, I know what a horse is, I know what a squid is, I know what candy corn is, I know what mountains are because of things I've experienced in real life. So these dreams, no matter how fantastical, no matter how intense, are still, to some measure, bound by my own sensory experience of the world. So it is not, for Foucault, a hyperbolic departure from sensory experience as Derrida is wont to think, or that Derrida thinks. Instead, the only reason that Descartes is able to uh, call upon dreams to trouble our understanding of the everyday world is precisely because it doesn't actually depart from the everyday world. Because if it was uh, a, a totally transcendent phenomenon that is totally removed from the everyday, it wouldn't actually do anything to question our faith in reality or for us to question reality because we wouldn't be able to compare it to anything. Where if we dreamt of a, a Skalorki dork, we wouldn't it wouldn't trouble our idea of reality because we don't know we don't experience Skalorki dorks in real life because that's not a real thing uh for any english second language people listening that's not a real word i just made that up but when we have a dream about a real thing like for example uh, a burning fire then suddenly or we can we can question in our daily lives how can i actually discern this dream fire from this real fire and there must be that connection in order for doubt to occur, for doubt to be operational, for doubt to work. So the whole project of doubt that uh, Descartes opens up is kind of brought into question here by Foucault in that Foucault recognizes the validity behind it. Descartes did a, like a philosophically uh, ingenious thing with his, with his project to arrive at the point, I think, therefore I am. But Foucault is saying that this isn't a departure from the world. This is very much working within the confines of the world. And what happens is uh, the subject who is doubting, the subject who is arriving at the point of uh, just being a thinking subject and therefore concluding that they exist, that subject still remains from beginning to end of this process. However, they are disturbed in the process. They aren't 
uh, kind of taken away from the world. They aren't brought into anything totally new. They are still bound by the world. They still exist within it. However, they have been fundamentally changed within that world, but they still retain their subjectivity. Now, such a possibility is not allowed to or given to people who are considered mad. So in this, this case, Foucault kind of meditates on the person who, on the poor person living in, uh, in poverty, of course, who imagines themselves to be a king. So they say that they're a king and that they're royalty, even though they don't have any money to their name. In that moment for Descartes, there isn't the demonstration of doubt. That madman isn't doubting their uh, poverty, you know, and, and instilling it with something else. They are just insane, so to speak. And so their, um, their belief is discredited and it is not worthy of considering. Now, that might seem a little bit confusing, but we'll, we'll just put a pin in that for a moment and we're going to return to it in a little bit where Foucault develops it a little more. Now, as you might recall, in Derrida's text, he takes Foucault to task on, a, on mistranslating or misinterpreting a translation into the French, from, from Latin into the French. But Foucault recognizes as well that Derrida, for some reason, seems to have done the exact same thing. Derrida seems to ignore that original Latin words or words that were in the original uh, Latin used by Descartes, like insani, uh, amentes, and demens, I don't know if I pronounced those correctly, but those are the terms, are not just neutral descriptions of mad people. They instead, as Foucault I think correctly identifies, they instead emerged juridically, that is in accordance with a sort of punitive or uh, what I will just say to for simplicity, they emerged from institutions that sought to give labels to people who are undesirable or who were um, considered to be deviant or, um, you know, derivative from the norm. So this corresponds then to a logic of exclusion embedded within the specific terms that Descartes used in his text. So Foucault says it's totally ironic that Derrida is critiquing Foucault for not properly grasping the kind of magnitude of the original language, or at least the, uh, the real meanings behind the original words used in Latin. And then Foucault is identifying that, you know, Derrida does the same thing. But really what Foucault's doing is saying that, you know, Derrida, it doesn't really matter if this so-called, what Derrida calls in his text, if the obvious translation or interpretation is not being met, if you refuse to acknowledge that words have a history and that you can't just translate a word from like Latin to French in a perfect way and expect the meaning to be retained. So... For example, uh, in French, there are two words for power. There's puissance and there's pouvoir. And oftentimes in a lot of theory texts, those two words are just translated to power, both of them. Whereas pouvoir is, is a word for power, that, that makes sense. Puissance is like, it, it is meant to denote a kind of like force or like potential to something. So it's describing almost the possibility for like a magnitude of power 
rather than like just neutral power. And it is more complicated than that yet. So all I'm saying is that a direct translation of a word does not necessarily elicit, uh, you know, a direct, uh, a direct translation of the meaning as well. So Foucault is pretty much saying to Derrida, like, you're pretty naive for thinking that all we need to do is properly translate this text from Latin to French, and then all problems of understanding or interpretation are going to be resolved. But, okay, I, so I kind of digress there, but to return to Descartes, Foucault recognizes that in Descartes, all of these terms that were used to denote madness, like insani and uh, demens, which translates almost directly to madman, are are meant to evoke the sense that those people are not equipped to undergo the kind of meditation and subsequent doubt that uh, Descartes departs on, that Descartes goes through, because they don't have, they haven't met the proper criteria for rational thought to actually do this. So the difficulty that emerges that Foucault is trying to tease out is that when Descartes looks at his arms from the Meditations on First Philosophy. He looks at his arms and says, I don't know if these arms are real. Or he looks at his fire and he says, I don't know if this fire is real. We don't suspect that this person is mad. Whereas if someone on the street who might appear as though they are disheveled or they might be disheveled or not wearing the type of attire that is assumed of someone of a high stature says that, oh, my body isn't real or that fire isn't real. We institutionalize them we call them mad we say that they need help so it becomes very difficult to discern and Foucault is very correct about this between what Descartes is doing and what these other people are doing and so Foucault identifies that Descartes project resides upon an exclusion of one form of reasoning that is the one that is conducted by these mad people uh, in order for Descartes to kind of construct and kind of chisel out a space for himself so that he can be free from condemnation as being um, mad, as being uh, in need of, of mental help. But you might recall that in Descartes and in uh, Derrida's text, there is a moment, or Derrida takes this up from Descartes' text, there is a moment in which Descartes lionizes or he praises painters and how painters of the highest caliber almost demonstrate a kind of madness in their capacity to produce something new. And so Derrida takes this point to mean that um, that Descartes is not excluding madness. In fact, Descartes' end goal is essentially madness. And he uses this example to say that, oh, look at these people who are praised by Descartes. He equates them with a kind of madness. So therefore, Descartes can't be excluding madness. So in response to that, Foucault points out that it is ironic for Derrida to cling to these words because they aren't in the original Latin, that is this praise of uh, painters in such a way. They're only from the French translation, which just further um, kind of contributes to uh, Derrida's own mis mistranslating these terms. They're only from the French translation. The real translation, instead of saying that painters are extravagant and producing something like unworldly or something that is totally new. The real translation would be if perhaps painters invent something so new. So there is a, a kind of um, a lessening of the evocative, of the 
uh, praise of what painters do in their departure from the world, in their uh, extravagance, which is really the key term, to just saying that they make something new, which is a lot less intense. There's a lot less uh, kind of force behind that. However, given this, Foucault says that Derrida is not wrong, that Descartes does not outright exclude madness. Descartes isn't like, don't let any mad people think such things because they don't have that capacity. He's a lot more subtle about it, and that's what Foucault's more interested in. But in any case, the way that madness is, albeit indirectly, it's subtle, the way that madness is kind of excluded is in the same way that like subjugated knowledge is, is excluded in the rest of Foucault's work. It, it is not something to be exercised or conjured away or excluded, but it, it is instead used as a point of comparison. So the distinction between madness and dreams for Foucault plays out indirectly in Descartes in a discursive way. So to kind of contextualize that, in Foucault's work, there is this very clear tension between subjugated knowledge and dominant knowledge. So dominant knowledge is like the kind of knowledge we see permeate in like uh, various institutions, academic institutions, you know, reputable ones, those that are uh, kind of are seen or lionized in the public eye, uh, academic institutions, uh, you know, medical institutions and so on, whereas subjugated knowledges are knowledges that are not given the same kind of, um, aren't seen as quite as credible. Like, for instance, indigenous healing practices, for example, is not viewed in the public eye. Depends, of course, how we define a public there, but I'm not going to get into that. Uh, it's not viewed in the same way. So what happens here is not an exclusion entirely of that form of subjugated knowledge. Instead, it is retained and kind of kept on the margins in order to enforce the um, power of the dominant center and making the dominant center a much more delectable or, I should say, um, delectable is the right word, but it, um, a much more appealing option than the out moded, you know, uh, maybe traditional, uh, archaic, um, other subjugated knowledge that can then be compared to rather than excluded. So in this way, Foucault isn't saying that this knowledge is completely uh, eschewed or taken away. It is instead maintained in order to proffer up, to raise up the dominant form of knowledge, if you can follow my, my reasoning there. And such is adduced or is proved by the use of the term meditation in Descartes. It's called meditation on first philosophy, which connotes both a proper system of conduct, like to meditate means certain things, like you have to um, meet certain, and Foucault comes down to talking about the place it needs to happen in, the state of mind you need to be in, uh, the kinds of things you're allowed to think about, what things you're allowed to meditate on, and so on and so forth. And how even though that these structures are present within meditation, it is guided toward or geared towards the operation of, of change, of adaptability. So we meditate in order to change ourselves, to maybe correct something about ourselves. Nevertheless, it is still bound by certain codes uh, of conduct that determine its possible manifestation or how it will play out which is often, which is in this case, excluded or, or um, foreclosed to those people who do not abide by these very strict 
kind of structural assumptions about how meditation can occur, like those people who are poor or who are considered mad or so on. So another issue that Foucault has, not only with Derrida, but, but Descartes as well, is the assumption that you can actually do what Descartes claims to do, that is doubt everything. And the idea is that once you doubt everything, you're still left with the act of doubting, you're still left with the act of thinking. So therefore, you can't get rid of that thinking, because that would depend upon you getting rid of thinking that would require you to be thinking. So you always have thought. Because it comes down to that point, what Foucault criticizes them on is their belief that the operation of thought is a homogenous uh, thing, as though the act of thinking isn't comprised of a number of different orders. So there's maybe rational thought. There's the thought of self-interest. There's emotional thought. There's the thought of um, care, you know, whatever, the religious thought. What does it mean to say that you are left with thinking unless you critically evaluate all of these ways that thinking manifests? So when you say you're going to doubt everything, shouldn't it necessarily follow then that with your thinking brain, you are going to doubt even the rational faculties, the rational uh, capacities you have that allowed you to arrive at that point? But they don't take it that far. And Foucault is very suspicious of that, saying like, do they not want to take that extra step? Because then that would essentially make them equal to these mad people. And they secretly, subconsciously don't want that. They still want to retain their distance, uh, their, their possible differentiation from these people. So without considering these things, Foucault pretty much just says, and he doesn't pretty much just say, he says that Derrida is continuing the Cartesian exclusion in that Derrida is is erasing the fact that Descartes' whole premise is dependent upon a certain construction of reason that necessarily implies the exclusion of another form of reasoning or any other form uh, of reasoning. And what is more, what we see is that Descartes expressly, expressively, expressly attempts to not be construed as mad. And there's that one moment that Derrida kind of meditates on where uh, this naive philosopher says to Descartes, like, oh, you cannot possibly doubt that this body, that your body or this, this paper in front of you or this fire next to us is real. You can't possibly do that. Uh, and Descartes is like, no, that would be, uh, I don't want to be construed for a mad person. Or like, how do we have to differentiate ourselves from people that are insane who think such things? And we have to do it essentially rationally, which is what Foucault kind of, is really chewing into here as being the crux of this original um, or not not original but how Descartes is uh, a figure within the exclusion exclusionary practices against uh, madness so Foucault recognizes that Derrida sees an exclusion of madness but this is not done specifically so as you might recall in Derrida's text Derrida says that in, in many cases, reason and madness are two sides of the same coin, and neither have a very clear identity. And in fact, they often blend into one another and fold into one another because they are the product of logocentrism that always already implies a kind of exclusionary rhetoric. That is, it silences one element of the binary, but it only does so because it's trying to veil the fact that 
that silenced aspect is really the uh, kind of privileged aspect, the privileged side of the binary. So for more on that, you know, I did the episode last week on uh, Derrida, but, you know, I have a few other episodes on Derrida that would probably help a lot with that. But in any case, Foucault recognizes that, but he's also recognizing that there was a very specific historical moment in which certain kinds of knowledge were just beginning to be excluded, not on the merit of their um, their legitimacy, but instead uh, just because what we saw was a kind of forming of various monopolies of knowledge that sought to contain and maintain their um, their own beliefs and their own knowledge at the expense of other knowledge. So Foucault concludes by saying that uh, Derrida is prey to a kind of metaphysics. That is, he's abstracting from everyday life to describe this thing called logocentrism that essentially takes us out of these these everyday instances or these more um, refined historical institutional forms of exclusion or discrimination that really determine a whole field of possible experience for many people. And this comes down to Derrida's idea that there is nothing outside of the text, which is a very complicated idea. But Foucault takes that to me to be just too broad a statement. That is, it doesn't actually get at the heart of many of these specific uh, instances. So yeah, we're, we're in the conclusion here, but Foucault finishes off by saying that what Derrida is concerned with is textuality, that is concerned with what it means to be occupied within, to occupy a text, which we always are, whereas Foucault is much more interested in discursivity. So to kind of illustrate that in the way that or in the way that Derrida imagines interpretation as coming down to like translating specific words, for example, and how these words circulate within a certain economy of possible historicity and possible, not, not specific histories, but within the very logic of historicity. Uh, whereas Foucault is more interested in the specifics of a word, how it circulates within a certain economy of uh, institutional regulation and institutional control, which will determine its use and how it maintains certain forms of oppression, certain institutional power, and so on. So yeah, that's kind of the, the quibble, squabble, disagreement, whatever, between Derrida and Foucault. Uh, if I did anything wrong, I'd like to hear about it. If you like what I did, you know, you could drop a like. If you didn't, you can dislike um, anything you'd like. And I'd like to hear from you if, of course, I did anything wrong or I left anything out. And yeah, click on one of these sides if you're on YouTube and you can find another video if you're interested in that. But yeah, for now, take care.